what was civil about that war. I remember one Saturday morning in December, during my first year in the little brick house on Brompton Street in Fredericksburg, Virginia, I awakened early to the sound of a drum tapping out a brisk marching cadence and the stomp of hard boots up the block on a street curiously named Sunken Road. Who's having a parade today, I wondered. In this weather? At this hour? I looked out the front door and there was a small unit of soldiers, all wearing scratchy-looking wool uniforms and slouch caps. They carried old rifles, some of them with bayonets drawn. Of course, I thought, Civil War reenactors. Here in town to commemorate the First Battle of Fredericksburg, fought December 13, 1862. That was one of the largest, bloodiest battles of the whole Civil War, and some of the heaviest fighting took place just up the street and around the corner from my house at a place called Marie's Heights. I had never been to a reenactment before. This could be fun, I thought. I'll go see what there is to see. Now, in 1862, the land around my house was farmland. Today, it's all pretty much neighborhoods and businesses, except for the Fredericksburg Battlefield Park, between Lafayette Boulevard and Kirkland Avenue. At the north end of this park, surrounded by a thick, thorny hedge, there's a larger-than-life-sized bronze statue of a Confederate soldier, Sergeant Richard Kirkland, who was called the Angel of Marie's Heights. He's giving water to a dying Union soldier. Nearby, in the middle of the battlefield, stands a little white house. You can see where bullets ripped through the doors and walls. Next door, there's a well house and a short fence outlining where another house withstood the battle, but later burned down. A woman named Martha Stevens owned this property. She was 36 years old at the time, reputed to be strong-willed, opinionated, and a woman of loose morals. She refused to evacuate, despite the danger, but instead stayed on her property and nursed wounded soldiers. More than 2,000 shells hit her house, some of them piercing the walls, but no one inside was hurt. As I read the information on the bronze plaques set up around Martha Stevens' property, I thought, wow, here's a hero I want to find out more about. And I made my way among the uniformed reenactors and women in full-skirted dresses to the park's bookstore. The bookstore is full from floor to ceiling with nothing but books about the Civil War. I figured even if I didn't find a whole volume about Martha Stevens, I'd at least find some hefty references. But I must have checked every title on those shelves, and I found no more about her than I had already read on the bronze plaques outside. I asked the manager for help. He disappeared into a back room and came out with a book by one of the park historians, Noel Harrison. Martha Stevens figured significantly on several pages of this book. I bought it and took it outside so I could stand where she lived and read about her. I must have been inside the bookstore longer than I thought, because the bright sunny day had turned into a damp, foggy evening. All the reenactors were packing up to go home. I stood near the well house on the corner of Martha Stevens' property and became so engrossed in my reading that I didn't even notice the young soldier approach. He was just suddenly there, a young man, 18, 19 years old. 
His blue eyes were the liveliest I think I've ever seen. Fair complexion, rosy cheeks, a beautiful young man, but dirtier than I ever thought a human being could get. How did he manage to get so filthy in one short day? Maybe he took a spill along the river bank. That would explain his torn, muddy cloak. When he saw that he had startled me, he tipped his cap and bowed in a courtly, old-fashioned way, and he said, Oh, begging your pardon, ma'am. I nodded back at him, and we both stood there, watching the last of the pickups and minivans pull out of the parking lot. He nodded at a man in a corporal's uniform, stowing gear in the bed of a camper. Now there's a sight you'd not have seen the eve of this battle, he said to me. Yeah, sport truck with a fiberglass shell. I know what you mean. Ah, the vehicle, yes, he agreed. But more particularly, I was talking about the fat man posing as a soldier. You'd see no fat men in uniform, Union or Confederate. How come? Short rations. Food was hard to come by. Ah, sure, the army fed you. They gave each man a measure of meal, some salt pork, beans, a little coffee, but it was hardly enough to live on. Well, so you could buy extra food or forage, couldn't you? Well, those with money could buy, if there was aught for sale. And you've got to remember, ma'am, the Union Army was wintering across the river there, one hundred thousand men, and all of them hungry. Forage, you say? Well, the farmers and the merchants who lived here had their own families to feed. They guarded their stores and their stock at gunpoint. No, fair few people of any race or any rank knew in those days what a full belly felt like. I was impressed with this boy's level of interest and knowledge. I asked him if he was a history major in school. School? He looked abashed. Oh, ma'am, I'm no scholar. My family... We're shoemakers by trade. Well, I said, you've certainly taken some pains to learn your history. I I'm noticing the detail on your uniform. Did you pattern it after a particular regiment? I could tell my question really bewildered him. He said, standard issue is this uniform, ma'am. 28th Massachusetts, 4th Regiment of the Irish Brigade. The Irish Brigade. Now there was a group of soldiers with a high profile. Almost every book I had thumbed through in the bookstore said something about the Irish Brigade, about their fearlessness, their gallantry, the fact that they suffered casualties far beyond the rate of death and injury inflicted on other battalions, the fact that in spite of heavy casualties, they never once lost their battle standard, a huge green flag with a golden harp embroidered on it. I've been reading about the Irish Brigade, I told him. Weren't they among the first to charge the Confederate line that day? Aye, he answered, among the first to be slaughtered. Yeah, I said. Do you find it ironic that these immigrants voluntarily joined the army to fight a war that wasn't really even theirs to fight? And they suffered such unbelievably high casualties. Were they that dedicated to the Union cause? I suppose some were, he said. But for most Irishmen, no. Loyalties were first and always with Mother Ireland. Well, then, why did they leave Ireland in the first place? Ah, oh, ma'am, he said. The plight of the Irish Catholic 
under the reign of England's Queen Victoria, was not much less mean and harsh than the life of a plantation slave in this land. During the big hunger, Irishmen starved by the thousands while their English landlords sat on vast stores of food and laughed to watch the Irish die. They made it a crime for an Irishman to say his prayers. We were barred from entering the professions, not allowed to buy land, forbidden to own livestock worth more than five pounds, arrested, thrown into prison, many times executed for no crime at all. Ah, you could stay in Ireland and endure a life of persecution and starvation. Or you could come to America, where if half the rumors were true, there was work and freedom and food for all. I wondered how immigrants came by the money for passage across the ocean. A passage was easily arranged, he said. The big cargo ships that came from America, loaded down with cotton for the mills in England, they needed ballast to make them steady sailing back across the stormy sea. Human ballast it was. Their holds were crammed tight with Irish immigrants, much like you read of the slavers bound across the Middle Passage from Africa. I had to concede that he was right, but I pointed out to him that at least the immigrants were free to leave the ship once they arrived in New York or Boston Harbor. I, he agreed, Free to wander up and down the streets where the help-wanted signs said, Irish need not apply. Free to be turned away from lodging houses. Free to hire on for the jobs so dangerous that slaves were kept off of them. Competing with free blacks for the low-paying, menial work. Ah, uh, make no mistake, ma'am, for all Mr. Lincoln's pretty speeches about freedom and equality, you not see a black man doing a white man's work for a white man's wages. Well... For some immigrants, it was starve, or enlist in the army, where at least you got a suit of clothes and a small ration of food. Devil of a choice, if you ask me. At that moment, a woman came toward us from out of the fog. She wore a faded calico dress, patched and mended. Her hair was pulled back in a severe bun. She startled both the soldier and me when she bustled right up to us, and without so much as a pause or an excuse me, she looked straight at me and said, "'You want to learn more about Martha Stevens?' It wasn't a question. I figured she must have overheard me in the bookstore. I nodded and said, "'Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm awfully curious.' "'Well, just you hush then and listen,' she said. "'I'll tell you about Martha Stevens and about those December days.' And about him there yonder, too. She nodded curtly to the bronze statue of Sergeant Kirkland and the dying Union soldier. It's a common belief, fostered by men, it seems to me, that the reason women don't go to war and face off against each other to kill and be killed is because women are the weaker sex. They say we lack the heart, the strength. They say we're timid, we're frail. I say that's a load of hogwash. I've helped many a woman in labor bring a baby into the world. I know how much pain a woman can endure and how courageous women are to take that risk. Why, childbirth killed more women in my day than anything else. No, it's not a weak heart and a fragile constitution keeps women off the battlefield. It's good sense. I believe if women ran the affairs of men... They'd think of something besides guns and cannons to settle differences. Now, 
Don't be thinking that Martha Stevens was not a proud daughter of the Confederacy. Oh, I am a patriot, and in those cold December days I proved my loyalty to President Davis, to General Lee, and to the cause for which they fought. I remember like it was yesterday. For three weeks, General Burnside and his Yankees, the Army of the Potomac, were camped out across the river, thousands and thousands of them, just sitting there like stumps. We didn't know if they intended to march on us or if they were merely digging in for the winter. General Lee prepared for the worst, got his defenses strong all along Confederate Ridge out south of here, up behind us right here on Marie's Heights and out to the bluffs over the river north of Falmouth. Finally, on December 11th, it became clear that Burnside was ready to make a move. Now everybody in town who had safe places to flee to had already fled. I got my own daughters, Mary and little Agnes, away to safety. But when the soldiers came to my door on the eve of the battle and told me my property was right on the line where the fighting would be fiercest, when they urged me to seek safety elsewhere, I told them, No, I'm staying put. And them as knows Martha Stevens here in town know that I am not a woman to be ordered about, not even by officers. I said... When all is said and done here, you're going to have a lot of men need sewed up and seen to. I'm a nurse by trade. You'll be glad I'm here. Now, it doesn't take a scholar to figure out that besides performing a service, I was also determined to keep a close eye on my property. Only a fool or a desperate person walks away and leaves their home to the pleasure of soldiers, even Confederate gentlemen soldiers. I did open up my son John's house next door so as they could post lookouts from the upstairs windows and shoot at any Yankee spies that might come snooping. And I graciously invited General Kershaw to set up his base of command in my parlor. Down at the river, several hundred of General Barksdale's Mississippi sharpshooters were busy picking off the Yankee engineers who were trying to lay a floating bridge across the river. Ah, uh, Barksdale's men knew full well they would not stop the invasion, but they determined to make the Yankees pay dearly for it. As it was, the poor city of Fredericksburg paid a terrible price for this show of resistance. That afternoon, General Burnside, in a fit of frustration, ordered his cannons, set up there on Stafford Heights, to bombard the town. Hell, fire, and brimstone could not have been more terrifying. Whole streets went up in flames. And what survived the firestorm fared no better in the long run. For the next day, when the river was finally breached and the Yankees marched into town, you never saw such looting in your life. Savage it was, wanton. They'd haul heirlooms into the street and chop them up or set them ablaze for the sheer pleasure of destruction. December 13th started out cold and foggy. Along about noon, though, the fog began to lift, and I felt the air stir with something that had nothing to do with the season or the weather. From far down along the river, I could hear a piper piping out a gay little melody, and then out of the fog they came, the poor mad fools. They marched behind an enormous green flag with a golden harp embroidered in the middle of it, each man wore a sprig of boxwood in his cap, green, to remind him of home. 
It was the famous Irish brigade we had heard so much about. Among the first that day to die. Up the rise they trotted in formation, straight at us. Must have been a thousand strong. But they got no further than the Stratton house, a hundred yards away, before they started falling. Falling like wheat before a mower's blade. Line upon line of them falling before they even got close enough to take aim and fire, and still they kept pouring across the plain, up the rise. From up atop Marie's Heights, our artillery rained cannon down upon them, and see here where the road that runs in front of my house is sunken down below the ground around it? Behind this stone wall that keeps the ground from collapsing into the road, the infantry stood, lined up, rifles ready, four deep. When the man in front had fired his shot, he dropped back to reload, while the man behind him took aim and fired. Then he dropped back, and the next man stepped up to aim and fire. And by the time the fourth man had fired and dropped back, the first rifleman was reloaded and ready to take aim again, presenting the Yankees with an unbroken wall of hot lead. For all they were the enemy, my heart went out to them. They had not even a fighting chance. It wasn't a battle. It was slaughter. All that day the guns roared and the shells flew. Over my house, around my house, through my house. One big Yankee shell came ripping through the east wall of the house and out the other side before it exploded in the yard. Hot metal flew everywhere. That was the death of General Cobb of Georgia. A fragment shattered his thigh and set him off to bleeding like a stuck pig. They tied a bandana above the wound, which did little to staunch the flow of blood, and then they carried him inside to me. The only piece of material in the house big enough to do any good as a tourniquet was the skirt of my dress, so I ripped off the bottom edge and did my best to bind his wound. Cobb leaned up on one elbow and watched me work, curious, calm. In his eyes I could see that he knew, as I knew, that he was a dead man. He had seen enough men shot up to know that he would either bleed to death right then and there, which is a quiet way to die, or he would lose his leg to the surgeon's saw with nothing but a swig of whiskey for the pain, and then wait in agony to see, would the blood poisoning set in and carry him off raving in a fever, or would the gangrene set in and he'd die slow in the stench of his own rotting flesh, or would the wound heal? and leave him to spend the rest of his life a cripple. When I heard that he died soon after they carried him away to the field hospital, I said a prayer of thanks. General Kershaw took over Cobb's command, and for all they was calling it light Confederate casualties, my house and yard filled up with the wounded, and I ran for water to the well and back several times, hellfire raining down around me. The Yankees kept on coming, wave after wave of them, and our soldiers just kept on killing them. The only thing that put a stop to the fighting that day was sunset, and it got too dark to take aim. Quiet, sweet, blessed silence, and darkness to shield our eyes for a few hours from the horror that surrounded us, and a soft blanket of fog. But the silence didn't last long For as soon as my ears quit ringing I could hear them Yankee soldiers out there on the battlefield 
the ones that didn't get killed outright but were too wounded to get themselves back to camp, moaning and crying, hurting, cold on that frozen ground, scared and thirsty. Their voices croaked out, Water, please, water. Late that night, I finally fell asleep, and in my sleep, I could hear them calling out for water. Shooting started up the next day, soon as there was light enough to take aim, but nowhere near as bad as the day before. I looked out the upstairs window over the field behind my house, fully expecting to see it strewn with scraps of blue, the wounded Yankees in their uniforms, and I did see that. But what I did not expect to see was the cold frozen blue of the naked dead lying before me, and my heart moved with pity both for the wretches who had died and also for our threadbare soldiers who were cold and desperate enough to risk getting shot, taking the bloody soiled clothes off their dead enemies. Terrible as that sight was to behold, though, it was nothing compared to the sound of the moaning and the wailing coming from those that weren't dead yet. General Burnside would not admit defeat, so there was no flag of truce to allow the able-bodied to bear the wounded off the field, and by the second day their cries were pitiable indeed. When a person is hurt bad, right at first their body goes into shock. A blessed numbness it is, and for a while you may not even feel the pain. I saw soldiers walking around, one captain giving an order, an infantryman making a joke, not even aware that their intestines were spilling out their shirts or, or that they were missing a whole arm. Ah, oh, but that numbness doesn't last long. And if you live until it wears off, why, that's when the pain sets in, and the fever, and the desperate crying out, Water, please, water. All that morning and all that afternoon. Water, water. I can't imagine hellfire being more terrible than lying wounded on a battlefield, unable to move, calling out for water, and no one taking heed. Long about two o'clock that afternoon, into my house bursts this young soldier. The stripes on his shoulder told me he was a sergeant, but his face told me he wasn't much more than nineteen, twenty years old. He looked all agitated, fit to be tied. He saluted General Kershaw, and he said, "'General, I can't stand it any more.' And he asked permission to go out there and give them poor wretches some water. Kershaw didn't answer right away, just looked hard at that boy, blinked a couple of times. Finally, he said, "'Sergeant, you know you'll get a bullet in your head as soon as you step up out of the road and over that stone wall.' And that boy, Kirkland was his name, Sergeant Richard Kirkland, of the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers, he said, Yes, sir, I know that, but if you will let me go, I am willing to try it. Kershaw said he oughtn't to allow something so foolhardy and dangerous, but how could he say no to such a brave and noble request? Go on ahead, he said to the boy. He says, Trusting that God may protect you, you may go. We heard Kirkland's boots get halfway down the stairs, and then he hesitated. I wondered if he had lost his resolve and was changing his mind. But back up to the general he went and asked, could he wave a white handkerchief in front of him? The general says, no, Kirkland, I can't allow that. 
All right, sir, says Kirkland. I'll take the chances. Then we watched that fool boy from South Carolina gather all the canteens he could carry. He filled them up right here at the well house, slung them over his neck and around his shoulders, and then he stepped over this stone wall into the sights of a thousand Yankee rifles aimed straight at him, but not one of them fired. Instead, all the shooting stopped, and we watched Kirkland run from soldier to wounded soldier. He knelt down at their side and lifted their heads so as they could drink the water he brought them. Then he took and pillowed their heads with their knapsacks so as they could breathe better. He covered them up good with their overcoats on that frozen ground. And lastly, he swapped out the Yankees' empty canteen with one of his full ones. Now, when the Yankees saw clear that this fellow was helping their wounded, not filching their dead, a cheer rose up, first from the northern troops and, and then from the Confederates, and they cheered him on until his water supply gave out. He ran back to the well house to fill up the empty canteens, and the shooting started up again. But as soon as he stepped over the wall and onto the field with more water, they left off their shooting and took to cheering once more. So for better than an hour, he went back and forth, back and forth, until he had seen to every wounded soldier on that field. I don't know which side give him his new name, the Yankees or us. It just blew like a soft breeze across the battlefield, the angel of Marie's Heights. That's what they called Richard Kirkland from that day on, and that's how he's remembered. He got through the Battle of Gettysburg unhurt, I'm told, but he didn't make it home from Chickamauga in September of 63, just a short nine months later. He was still one of the lucky ones, I reckon, shot and killed, over and done with, in a matter of minutes. I believe the Lord looked out for him. I have to tell you my heart swells with pride when I think of the bravery and compassion of that boy. To this day it brings tears to my eyes, but beneath the pride I feel a shiver of horror knowing that there dwells within one and the same human breast a heart that's willing to kill for a cherished belief, willing to see a fellow creature as mortal enemy. And then when that enemy is crying out in the agony of death, the same heart that dealt the death blow can move to tenderness and compassion. I don't understand the nobility of men. I confess I am purely mystified. The woman wiped tears away and looked defiantly at my companion and at me. She nodded toward the statue of Sergeant Kirkland and the dying Union soldier and said, There, now you know. And as abruptly as she had swept in upon us, she carried herself away. The young Irish soldier and I stood there in silence for a moment, and then I said, She's right, you know. He had just tried his best to kill them. And then he jumped the wall and risked his life in order to bring them comfort? In the long run, did it even matter? They still died. I don't know about the long run, ma'am, he said. But I can tell you, at the moment, yes, it mattered. Oh, it mattered greatly to some. We stood beside Martha Stevens' well house and watched the fog roll up in cold, pale wisps. Then he tipped his hat to me, that formal, old-fashioned gesture, and he said, 
I'll be getting back now. Fare thee well, ma'am. He turned to walk away. How did he walk so silently, in those heavy boots, on these gravel paths? And then I saw how he did it. As the Irish boy soldier walked away from me, his feet turned to fog. He wafted, like vapor carried on a breeze, becoming more and more transparent the further he drew away from me, until he passed through the thorny hedge surrounding the monument. I saw the shape of that boy ascend the pedestal and melt into the bronze body of a dying Federal soldier, face upturned to receive the gift of waterborne by another 19-year-old boy, Sergeant Richard Kirkland of the 2nd South Carolina Volunteers, the Angel of Marie's Heights. From down along the river, I heard a piper playing a lively little jig I remembered from childhood. The Gary Owen, it was called. That melody wrapped around me with the cold gray mist. It followed me home that night, and I carried it deep into my dreams. <laughs> 